Let's turn to Romans chapter 12, please. Romans chapter 12, as we continue our study through this incredible passage. And for our context, we'll begin in verse 1 and read through to verse 8. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Verse 3 For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, although many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We've already spent quite some time looking at verses 1 and 2. And I hope you have found that incredibly helpful, I have, uh, in our discussions and our time in the Word. Today we come to verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We need to understand this morning that Romans 12 and verse 3 is a bridge. You know what a bridge is in music? It's also a bridge in the scripture in one sense. It's a bridge between spiritual consecration, verses 1 and 2, and spiritual service in verses 4, 5, 6, 7 and 8. And it deals with our spiritual attitude. You see, humility, not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, flows out of consecration and it must precede service if the work we do for Christ is going to have any eternal worth. We've spent much time dealing with consecration, verses 1 and 2, transformation, illumination, um, all of those matters. Now we come to verse 3, which is this bridge dealing with our spiritual attitude before we can continue into spiritual Service. Remember that we're on the path to learn what it is about these spiritual gifts that God has given to us, how we're to use them, what they are, how to enrich them and so forth. But before we do that, we must look at verse 3, which is the spiritual attitude, the heart of the issue. And it's important that this bridge, so to speak, cannot be bypassed if we're going to serve the Lord according to his pattern. Humility is hard. It opposes our natural inclinations and it is only forged in the fires of sanctification. Pride is the prevailing sin in every human being and always leaves destruction in its wake. Pride destroys marriages. Pride destroys churches. Pride destroys friendships. But more importantly than all of that, pride gets in the way of our relationship with the Lord. Pride is the easiest sin to commit and the hardest to destroy. Pride is the root from which all sin grows. In fact, one writer said, pride is the dandelion of the soul. Its roots go deep. Only a little left behind sprouts again. Its seeds lodge in the tiniest encouraging cracks and it flourishes in good soil. The danger of pride is that it feeds on goodness. The story is told 
of two ducks and a frog who lived happily together in a farm pond. The best of friends, the three would amuse themselves and play together in their waterhole. When the hot summer days came, however, the pond began to dry up and soon it was evident that they would have to move. This was no problem for the ducks who could easily fly to another pond. But the frog was stuck. So it was decided that they would put a stick in the bill of each duck that the frog could hang on to with his mouth as they flew to another pond. The plan worked well, so well in fact, that as they were flying along, a farmer looked up in admiration and mused, well isn't that a clever idea? I wonder who thought of it. The frog said, I did. (laughs) Like the little frog who wanted recognition and fell to destruction, we must be ever so vigilant about this matter of pride. Our focus today is an uncomfortable subject for all of us. All of us, whether behind the pulpit or in the pew, this is an uncomfortable subject. As we look at the prerequisites of service, part four, but particularly overcoming the great sin of pride. Lord, we need your help so much this morning as we look at this subject. We confess now, even before we look at it, that this is a problem for all of us. Uh, The different manifestations of pride in all of our hearts uh, Lord, it is, it's there at all times and how we need your help to be humble. And just when we think we've got somewhere, we lose it. Uh, and so, Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to be brought low that you might exalt us in time to come. We don't live for that exaltation. We live for Christ. And we need so much help in this matter of pride. Help us to see in our own hearts without the preacher pointing at specific things. See in our own hearts the devastation that pride is doing in each of our lives that we might mortify it this day. Help us, we pray, in these moments to come. In Jesus' name, amen. We've got a little bit to cover this morning and I'm going to move relatively quickly. Remember that everything that we preach from this pulpit is available in text form. So at the end of this, if you think I missed a whole lot of that, please get a copy uh, because... I've worked very hard on providing a manuscript for us on this particular subject because there is so much that can be dealt with. So let's have a look, first of all, at the mandate regarding pride. First point, the mandate regarding pride. In our text, Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. In other words, this is a command. This is an imperative in the Greek. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Now, we need to be, just be careful we understand what the text here is saying. For by the grace given to me, Paul says here, what grace? What are you talking about, Paul? What is this grace that you are here referring to? He's not talking about salvation grace. He's talking about the grace or the delegation of his apostleship. He says, by the authority, that grace that God has given to me to be an apostle, I am now commanding you. That's what he's saying in this text. This is not the grace of God as it relates to salvation. This is the grace of God as it relates to the gift of being an apostle. And we will look at that at another time as it relates to the gifts. We find in Romans chapter 1 verse 5 a very similar concept. We won't turn there, but let me read this to you. Paul writes in that text, We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Same concept, Paul says, God's grace in the form of the gift of being an apostle with all the authority, I hereby say this, is what he's saying in this text. In other words, on the basis of my office as an apostle, Paul says, and the authority that God has conferred to me, I command you to operate with humility. Interestingly, have a look at what our text says here. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. He singles out no one. This is not an exclusive message to some people at the church at Rome. This is a universal message, which means there must be a universal problem as it relates to pride. And that's very important for us to understand. Nobody is excluded from this matter of pride. Every one of us. Among you, everyone. Pride is the all-inclusive, all-prevailing sin in every church and in every age. And we need to understand that. That's the mandate 
regarding pride, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But now that's, that's helpful. But now we need to ask this question. What is the meaning of pride? Secondly, the meaning of pride. After much study on this particular subject this week and in times past, I think pride is most simply and basically and succinctly put into this little phrase, self-worship. Pride in its most basic ingredient is self-worship. This does not mean we erect an altar physically in our life and begin bowing to a photo of ourselves. That's not what we mean. But we mean that it is self-worship. It's the beginning of idolatry which robs God of his rightful glory and redirects it to ourselves. We need to pause a moment and just let me remind you that the word glory is one that is misunderstood greatly. Glory literally means the right opinion of someone or something. When we rob God of his glory, we are saying we are robbing God of the right opinion as to who he is, who he really is. We are robbing him of that and redirecting what should be his to ourselves. Pride is to take credit for something that God has accomplished. Interestingly, pride is not something we do. Pride is an incorrect perception we have. We might say that was a proud act over there, but pride itself is not an activity. It is a way of seeing things. It's an attitude of our hearts. See, pride begins with our heart. It is an internal attitude which finds pleasure and satisfaction in who I am and what I do rather than in who God is and what he does. You know what? Unfortunately, as part of being sinners, pride is the natural disposition of the human heart. Turn with me quickly, if you would, to Mark chapter 7. Let's see what the Lord Jesus has to say about this. Mark chapter 7. And verse 21, if you can find that, the, the context here is dealing with uh, what people eat and drink and whether that defiles them. And in verse 21, the Lord Jesus says, Mark chapter 7, verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride. Foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. This is not external to us. Some of us like to, um, to attribute to Satan and his realm much more than actually what comes directly from him. You know, we have a much greater battle with our own flesh than we do with our external enemy. The greatest enemy in the world is me. That's my greatest enemy. Your greatest enemy is you. Uh, we can blame left, right and centre. We can blame shift. But the reality is it's my heart that is my greatest enemy because out of my heart come these things. And one of them, the Lord Jesus Christ says, is pride. Jonathan Edwards, that great preacher of yesteryear, writes, The first and worst cause of errors that abound in our day and age is spiritual pride. This is the main door by which the devil comes into the heart of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christ. It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. Pride is the main handle by which he has hold of Christian persons and the chief source of all the mischief that he introduces to clog and hinder a work of God. Spiritual pride is the main spring or at least the main support of all other errors. Until this disease is cured, medicines are applied in vain to heal all other diseases. He knew how to say it. Jonathan Edwards. Meaning of pride. Self-worship. Thirdly, what I would like us to consider in this matter of pride is not just the mandate regarding pride, nor the meaning of pride, but probably more importantly, the manifestations of pride. This is where it gets hard. This is where it hurts. You see, pride takes so many different forms. But you can be assured of one thing. It is always self-centeredness. 
I want to take a look at some biblical examples of pride this morning. We're going to turn quickly to these uh, and then uh, we're going to continue on because we have something else that's going to take a little bit longer. The first person I want us just to have a quick look at is King Nebuchadnezzar. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king in all the earth at that particular time in history. Daniel chapter 4. had the privilege of reading through Daniel this last week in my, uh, my readings and uh, I was just amazed once again of how much information we are given in the book of Daniel. But in Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 28, immediately following the interpretation of a vision that Daniel uh, interpreted for the king, verse 28, it says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for my glory and for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will immediately. The word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Till his hair grew as long as eagles feathers. And his nails were like birds claws. Wouldn't that be a sight? You know what? I think we, would, we wouldn't wrestle quite as much with pride. If we spent seven years out in the paddock. Like Nebuchadnezzar did. But look at what he thought. Is not this great Babylon verse 30. Which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty. Now, we can look at that and go, naughty Nebuchadnezzar, how could he possibly have that mentality? We may not have a kingdom, but do we not do the same thing? Do we not look at what we have achieved, what we have accomplished with our hands, often, maybe not in word, maybe, not, maybe we're too Christianized for the verbal proclamations here, so to speak, but certainly our hearts take a similar form of pride we look at our fame or our fortune and we accredit, we attribute that to the work of our hands rather than to the power and majesty of God. Let's look at another king for a moment. Second Chronicles 26, a little bit earlier in the New Testament, in the Old Testament rather. Second Chronicles 26, King Uzziah, a wonderful king, a godly king, a man who loved the Lord. Second Chronicles 26, beginning in verse 16. You'll have to look at the context yourself for the sake of time. But he had done incredible things, great inventions made in his day and age uh, through his work. And in verse 16, Second Chronicles 26, 16, it says, But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood the king, Uzziah, and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. What a sad story. What a sad end to a great life spent serving the Lord. He had accomplished great acts for God. And until latter years, he had correctly attributed that success to the Lord, his God. However, he grew proud and assumed a role that was not given to him by the Lord. And like so often, his pride produced Anger with the priests that withstood him and God struck him with leprosy and great was his demise. Let's look at another 
Luke chapter 18. You get a full summary of all the books of the Bible in a minute, just about. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. Now we go to a parable. I've tried to give us various different types of biblical illustrations on this matter of pride. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. The Bible says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift his, up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified, that is, declared righteous, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Some trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Pride. Pride. Let's look at two more. Third John. Almost at the back of the New Testament. If you find anything other than just one chapter, there's something wrong with your Bible. So third John. Perhaps a verse you might have read but never seen before. Verse number nine. The Apostle John, towards the end of his life, is writing this. Third John, verse nine. I have written something in, uh, to the church, but Diotrephes who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want, uh, who want to and puts them out of the church. There's a great problem happening here, Third John, verse 9 and 10. This particular fellow, Diotrephes, likes to be first. Wants to be first. His pride wants him to be at the forefront. He won't acknowledge the authority of the apostles, which is an interesting matter. He won't submit to their authority. And he refuses to be a welcomer of people who do uh, accept their authority. He's guilty of resisting authority and being a lover of himself. Interesting little illustrations. Let's go to one last one in Revelation chapter 3. We've got King Nebuchadnezzar, King Uzziah, the Pharisee and the tax collector, Diotrephes. And lastly, we have the church at Laodicea, Revelation 3, beginning in verse 14. Again, the Apostle John, having seen a vision, and this is the Lord Jesus who has written this letter to the church. And he says, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful And true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. That's terrible enough, but look at what he says next. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that in actual fact, in brackets, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And you can read the rest of that text in your own time. The church is saying, we got here, we're rich, we're prospered, we don't need anything. What a devastating reality for the church of Jesus Christ to ever get to a point where they say, we need nothing, we've got everything we need. Manifestations of pride take on so many different forms in all of our lives. Now, you're ready to be frightened, our little church? I have 40 points. Now, before you throw me out, I'm literally going to read them. In my study of pride, and you probably want to take a copy of this because you probably won't write them all down. In my study on this matter of pride, there's probably more, but I can find on my own 40 different aspects that are manifestations of pride in our lives. 40. And that's... That's only uh, really an introductory study in preparation for this message. So here we go. 
Number one, unbelief in God. The most devastating reality in any life is pride that exists in unbelief towards God. Did you know pride damns souls? I will not be humble before God. Millions, billions of people will die in their sin because of pride. Number two, fault finding. Letting only the faults of others fall into our perception. And by the way, if you get a copy of this, there are um, obviously texts next to it for you to look at. Um, We would make a good study sometime for you to do that. Fault finding. Number three, a harsh or critical spirit. That is to belittle others and be intolerant towards their struggles. Number four, I almost feel wrong going through it so quick, but I have to, because otherwise you'll be here till tomorrow. Number four, superficiality. Living for the perception of others. Living my life so that others see what I do. Superficiality. Defensiveness, number five. That is self-justification, protection and aggression. You, you, you dare come to me with that? Oh, come on, let's, we'll go for this. Instead of a humility that comes from the Lord. Defensiveness. Number six, self-confidence and presumption. It's what we just read about. I can do this. I can pull myself up by my own boots. I've got this. I don't need God. I don't need the Holy Spirit. I can do this. Number seven, a desperation for attention and recognition. Remember in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, we deal with the Pharisees with their long robes and they wander around the streets and want to be seen of men. This is the concept, desperation for attention and recognition. I just want to be seen by people. I want people to recognize the value of my life. Number eight, unforgiveness and a failure to seek forgiveness. That's a big one. Did you know that if you withhold forgiveness, you are operating in pride? If you will not seek forgiveness when you've done wrong, you are operating in pride. Number nine. This is an interesting one. Failing to pray in a biblical manner. Have a look at that sometime in Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. Number 10. The negligence of some. In other words, preference towards some and not others. We read about that in numerous passages, but James chapter 2, remember? Someone comes into the assembly with a gold ring and we all say, ooh, let's give him a nice seat. Someone comes in in poor clothes, we say, oh, you sit down there by my footstool. That's the concept. The negligence of others. Favoritism is a form of pride. Number 11, discontentment is a form of pride. I don't have what I need. God, you've not given me what I should have. I know better, God. I want this. I need this. That is a form of pride, discontentment. Number 12, condescension. Looking down upon others. We just read about it. At least, O oh Lord, I am not like that tax collector. Look at what I do. A condescension towards one another is a form of pride. Number 13, complaining against or passing judgment on God. Is a form of pride. I can't believe you did that, God. I can't believe you let this happen in my life. How dare you do that in my life? This is my life. You can't do that. That is arguing with God about what is right and wrong. And that comes from pride. Complaining or passing judgment. Number 14. A lack of gratitude is a form of pride. I'm not thankful. I'm not thankful for what God has done. That is pride. How could you not be thankful? How could I not be thankful? What's wrong with me? Pride, that's what's wrong with me. A lack of gratitude. 15, anger. Anger always comes from pride. In fact, Proverbs says, only through pride comes contention. Church, we need to know this because we have, for the most part, a wonderful unity in our assembly, which I'm so thrilled about. That's one. But you know what? There's going to come contention. There always does. There's people involved. We need to understand when contention arrives, where did it come from? It came from pride. Always contention comes as a result of pride. And we need to know how to deal with it. Number 16, seeing yourself as better than others, similar to other ones we've looked at. Number 17, 
having an inflated view of your importance, gifts or abilities. I believe that this is the very reason why in Romans 12 verse 3 it says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. And then the gifts come. Because to some is given a multiplicity of gifts. Some others have just one. And we might look if we have many and say, look at what I've got. And this person over here may say, I've got nothing. Both operate with pride. Whether you look at it and say, woe is me, I've got no gifts. God doesn't really care about me. That's pride. Or, wow, look at all that I can do. That's pride. It's hard. Everywhere you go, pride just exists. Having an inflated view of your importance. Number 18, being focused on the lack of your gifts and abilities. Exactly what I just mentioned. Pride. Number 19, here's one I particularly struggle with. I've identified so many in here anyway, but here's one I particularly identify with. Just in case you thought that I was talking to you only and it had nothing to do with me, this matter of pride. Perfectionism. I'm a perfectionist and it drives me batty when things aren't right. But did you know that perfectionism is not a virtue? Perfectionism comes from pride. It's got to be like this. It's got, you know why that's perfection? Why perfection? That's exactly what the Pharisees wanted to do. They dressed up themselves on the outside and made it all look absolutely perfect. And yet, what did the Lord Jesus say? Inwardly, you've got real problems in the heart. There's a real problem. Now, that doesn't mean we can just be sloppy in everything we do. That's not what we're saying. But this constant perfectionism comes from pride. He's called us to be faithful, not perfect in one sense as it relates to what we do. Number 20, resisting authority or being disrespectful. A lack of submission is always rooted in pride. Number 21, voicing preferences or opinions when you are not asked. That's an interesting one. And there's biblical reason for that. Voicing preferences or opinion when you're not asked. Number 22, one that we all do. Minimizing your own sin and shortcomings. You know, I recall, this is a terrible personal testimony. I recall a time where in my heart I was convicted about a particular sin and I went to the word to disprove the reality of that conviction. And you know what happened? As always does. You go to the word and try and figure out a way out of what your sin is, the Lord very quickly proved to me that, in fact, that is sin, just like the conviction inside. Sometimes we seek to minimise our sin and shortcomings. Number 23, maximising others' sin and shortcomings. We were good at this. I know I did this, but did you see what Martin did? Sorry, Martin. You're just the closest. <laughs> did you see what he did? I mean, I didn't do that, Lord. He did that. I didn't do this. You know, did you see what Haley did? Uh, we do that. We might not say it. You know, we're too Christianised for that, but we think it. Or am I alone? (laughs) Number 24, being impatient or irritable with others. Number 25, talking too much. Proverbs tells us that comes from pride. Few of you went, oh no. (laughs) It's true though, talking too much. And then 26, in addition to that, in a different passage, it says, talking too much about yourself and your achievements not others focused. You know, when you talk to those people and uh, you might be one of those people, I might be one of those people, you talk to those people and think, eh, I'm so tired of hearing just about everything you've done. And we're so quick at being able to see that in other people. But often we don't realise that that's what we do ourselves so often. Maximising, excuse me, talking too much about yourself and your achievements. 27, we're nearly there. Seeking independence or control. I just want to be in control. I just want to be in, I want to be my own person. I'm in charge of my own destiny is the thinking of the day. Number 28, being consumed with what others think. I have had an opportunity to counsel with someone recently who has been dealing with a particular situation where everywhere they go they feel that someone is thinking something evil about them. And that comes from a, 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 a an incorrect perspective of truth. We know that. But that happens when we enter into this realm of pride. Those people are talking in the corner over there. They must be talking about me. Those people, they must be talking about me. And we develop an actual phobia through this matter of pride. It's a real thing. But the root of it is self-focused pride. I'm in everything is the concept there. Being consumed with what others think or what they might be saying about us. Number 29, being devastated or angered by criticism. It is a hard one. Very hard. What happens to you when someone criticises you? 
And don't you love it when they put that little parenthesis say, this is constructive criticism. You say, yeah. <laughs> I'll give you some destructive criticism. That's how we feel inside our hearts quite often. And it may, not, it may well not be constructive criticism at all. What happens, one sure way to know how your pride is going is when you are criticised. That's one sure way of knowing. What do you do when someone criticises? Number 30, being unteachable. Not willing to be taught by the word. Not willing to allow that to dwell in our hearts richly. 31, being sarcastic, hurtful, degrading, talking down to others are all forms of pride. Number 32, a lack of service. I'm unwilling to, I don't want to do that. Pride, I don't want to, so I'm not going to. I don't want to. When you begin a sentence with I, you've usually figured out where the pride is. I don't want to. Number 33, a lack of compassion. I don't care is the mentality there. That need, I don't care. We don't probably say that, but we definitely think it and our actions speak it. Number 34, being defensive or blame shifting. Well, what happened in the garden? It wasn't me, Lord. It was the what you made her. It's not my fault. And she said, well, it's the serpent. The blame shifting is none other than comes from the heart of pride. 35, a lack of admitting when you are wrong. A lack of admitting when you're wrong. Hard to do, isn't it? You've been fighting something. Maybe you've, you've had a marital discussion. You know those ones of you who are married where you have a marital discussion. It's not fierce. You're, we're Christians. We're, no, we're, we're having a discussion. But you, you know you're right. Come on, you're right. I can say this because my wife's in Sunday school at the moment. right? <laughs> I know I'm right. And then later on, you realise, oh boy, I was wrong. But you know what? I could just leave it. Could just, we'll just go on, you know, we'll have a nice dinner together and just get on with it. But in actual fact, I need to come to the table and admit that fault. Otherwise, I continue to exist in pride. And a relationship where two people are willing to humble themselves is a wonderful relationship. That's the bride of Christ and Christ. That's how that works. It's preparing us for the future. We need to be able to admit when we're wrong. Number 36, being jealous or envious. I want that. I don't have it. I want that. Pride. Number 37, using others. Using them to achieve our own selfish endeavours and purposes. Using others. Number 38, being deceitful by covering up sins, faults and mistakes. I don't want to get found out here. I better somehow go and dig and put this helmet in the tent of my life like Achan did there in Joshua chapter 7. I don't want to get caught out here. I don't want to get found. But the the Bible says be very careful because your sin will find you out. We cover up our sins and our faults and mistakes. Number 39, using attention-getting tactics. We know what they are. We do that. I want attention, so I'll... What do we see with a child? Throw a tantrum, gets me some attention. Um, We do that as adults, we just don't do it the same way. Well, some do, but most don't. (laughs) Number 40. This one's really important, number 40. Not having close relationships. Intentionally withdrawing myself from intimate relationships. In church, what this looks like is we're a family. We're a family. We are the blood-bought brothers and sisters of Christ. We've been called to confess our sins one to another, to be honest and open and transparent. But instead what I say is, no, I'm going to come on a Sunday. I'm going to sit in the pew. I'll sing some of those songs, but I'm not going to let anybody anywhere near my heart. I'm not going to let anybody in. There's not going to be a closeness here. I'm not prepared to have any intimacy here. That is pride. That is pride because God has called us to be intimate. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to be your best friend. That doesn't mean that I'm going to share absolutely everything and just put my heart on display. Otherwise, you enter into a different area of pride. But what we are talking about here is a willingness to let people in and to tell them about who I am and and, and the struggles that I'm having so that they can pray so that we can be in this together. That's humility. But pride says I won't have close relationships. I'll withdraw myself from those things. Now, I know I just made a new record with 40 points in 10 minutes. But from that list, I hope that we get this. Every Christian in this room, every person in this room wrestles with pride in some form or another. Paul's warning 
don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think is critical as we seek to serve the Lord with the gifts he has given. We have one more point and it won't take us long and this is really important um, for us to consider before we finish. It's all well and good to see the mandate regarding pride and the meaning of pride and then the manifestations of pride but now we must understand the mortification, the killing, the death of pride. How? How can I overcome pride in my life each day? How do I do that? Since there are 40 plus ways that it's operating in my life, how can I do this? Well, interestingly, in Romans chapter 12, if you're still there, I'll just read it to you, this part. It says, but think sober judgment. You know what this means? This means to have a sound mind. It's to see and think correctly. Pride puffs up. It exaggerates, it magnifies, and it is a distortion of the truth. Sober judgment sees the world and ourselves in the true light and context of Scripture. Who we really are, what our gifts really are. Sober judgment is the humble attitude and perception. A couple of passages you might want to note down. Philippians 2 and verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition. Or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. And then it goes on to say that great theological passage. Have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus, who was in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. And then it goes on to tell us that God exalted him in due course. First Peter, which we read this morning for a reason, verse 5 and 6, says, Clothe yourselves with humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 is a critical passage that says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows Me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight. The Lord says the only thing by which you can boast in is me. So in other words, it's not boasting. Because you're not boasting in yourself, you're boasting in who God is. So how can I overcome it in my life each day? Let me quickly give you these points. How can I overcome pride in my life each day? Number one, I must recognize this is a daily struggle. Failure to see that, failure to recognize that every single day of my life, I am going to wrestle with pride. If I don't see that, I will become part of it. I will become one who has taken it on even without realizing. Pride is so deceitful. It lies to us. And we must realize it's a battle every single day. We must give careful attention to the state of our minds and set up defenses against walking in our flesh. So recognize it's a daily struggle. Number two and critical. This is the one. If you get nothing else, take this with us today. How do I overcome pride in my life? Adopt the correct view of God. In other words, theology. Theology. Understand the character of God and that will help you defeat pride. When we're confronted with his glory, his power, his majesty, his work on my behalf, I have no room for pride. The only only position I can be in is one on my knees spiritually. When I realize what the gospel message has done for me. Be like Isaiah. And he saw, he saw who God was in an incredible way. And so much so that he said, look at how wicked I am. There was no room for him to be able to say, well, God, I know you want to send someone, so I'm the one. That's not what happened in Isaiah chapter 6. He saw the glory of God. And then in Isaiah chapter 6, about verse 4, he says, woe is me. You will say, woe is me. I will say, woe is me. When I see the glory of God, I'm not talking about a vision. I'm talking about in the pages of scripture. 
What about Paul on the Damascus Road? The Bible says he's been kicking against the goats. He knows God is after him. And then suddenly on the Damascus Road, the light shines and he is confronted with Jesus. Is it a life-changing experience? Look at his epistles. He never stops talking about what Jesus on the road to Damascus did for me. It humbled him because he came into contact with the Lord Jesus Christ. I've just been reading the book of Ezekiel this week as well as Daniel. But Ezekiel and uh, I, there's some things in Ezekiel I haven't seen before. But in chapter 1 and verse 28, I was blown away by what happened to Ezekiel after he saw God. It changed his life forever. What about John in Revelation 1 verse 17? When he's confronted with the glorified Christ, he falls down like a dead man. He doesn't stand up and go, ah, you've come to visit me. I'm someone special. He falls down like a dead man. We must see ourselves in the context of the gospel, church. We must realize who the Lord Jesus is and what he's done. And you know what we'll say with Peter in the fisherman's boat? We will say, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. We'll say with the apostle Paul, I am the chief of sinners rather than I'm something real special here. Aren't you lucky, Lord, that I'm on your side? But you know what? Many times that's sort of our mentality. Only when we adopt a correct view of God will our pride be mortified and humility, submission and dependence will reign in our lives. Almost there. Number three, we don't just adopt the right theology, the right concept of God, but then we must confess and repent of our sin. We must do this all the time, every day. Lord, pride has crept into my heart. I can see it here and here and here. And you have shown it to me through the spirit of God in my heart. I've been proud. I've been wrong here. Lord, I'm confessing. By the way, confess. Monologeo means to have one word. It means to agree with God about sin. So I agree with God. I have been proud, Lord. And now I am turning from that pride in repentance and going this way. Here's what this looks like. That fight with my wife, which, by the way, hasn't happened, but let's assume it has. That fight with my wife that has occurred and I've been pushing my agenda and I've been proud and I've been struggling with this thing and I'm going and going and going. And it's realized in my heart that I've done the wrong thing. In the private moment of my life, I say, Lord, I've been proud. I spoke in anger. I was arrogant. I was stubborn. That's one part. Then the second part is to now turn from that pride and go to that person and say, honey, that was wrong. That was sin. I was proud in that. Would you please forgive me? That's confession before God and repentance in life. We need to do both of those things all the time. You want to have, you want to have a testimony in life, in your job, in the community? Do this and you will. Go to your boss when you sin and say, you know what, I know you may not believe in God, but let me just tell you, I realized yesterday my attitude or whatever it might be was wrong. Would you please forgive me? That's real Christianity. That's humility. That's the world saying, what's with this guy? Nobody's ever asked for my forgiveness before. That's how we have a testimony in the world. Lastly, how can I mortify this matter of pride? Then, after confessing and repenting, defend against the spiritual attack. You know, like I do, the areas of pride that get manifested in your life. You know the chinks in your armor. So you must be double guarded. You must be so sure that here is my life. I know I'm prone to this area of pride. I've got to protect this area of pride. I've got to fortify the defenses here in my life. And if I fail to do that, I'm going to lose the battle every single time. Spiritual fortification is critical to withstanding the attacks of the flesh Read Ephesians 6. Look at the armor of God. What is the part that I need most? We've got to put it all on, but what do I need? Do I need to believe the truth more than anything? Do I need the helmet of salvation, that theology? Do I need the breastplate of righteousness because of my self-condemnation? What is it about the armor of God that I need so desperately to put on every day? What is that? Because I need to protect against the chink of my manifestations of pride in my heart. And you know, the hard thing about all of this is the moment we think we are successful. We just lost. So we can't be looking at it and going, aha, I won that battle of pride today. Oh, 
happen again. It's a bit like that story, I think I've told you about it before, uh, as a bit of an illustration about that pastor in the church who they considered, the elders considered, was the humblest pastor in the region. And so they got together and had a little meeting and they said, our pastor is so humble, we're going to give him a little badge. And so they got together and they announced it and they gave him the badge. And then on Sunday he wore the badge which said, I am the humblest pastor in the region. And so they took it back off him again. <laughs> it's a silly illustration, but it's a, it's a wonderful truth that the moment we think we're sort of getting somewhere, we put on our badge and we've lost it. We bring to conclusion with this message the prerequisites to service. We're moving into the gifts next. But I want to be very sure that we have covered carefully the importance of consecration. The importance in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 of consecration, of opposition to the things of the world, of transformation, of illumination into the will of God. And here before us, if we wanted to call it something, it is humiliation, being made humble. We need to be humble before we serve God. Help us to be that way. Let's pray. Lord, this is a mammoth topic and we have barely even scratched the surface. But I pray that this would be a sufficient entree for us to go our way in a little while, perhaps take the scriptures and some notes from this message or a book or something that's going to help us identify pride in our own life. Uh, Lord, your word is all sufficient, so we don't need any notes or anything, but sometimes the systematic nature of something like this will help us. And Lord, I just pray that you would identify for us individually, personally, the areas that we most wrestle with in this matter of pride, that Lord, we would be on guard. And oh Lord, as we are on guard individually, when we come together collectively, what a unity there will be. What a joy there will be to be together, each one preferring others above themselves, looking to build up and esteem others and a church filled of, full of people, uh, Lord, that do that, what a taste of glory divine that would be. And that's our desire, Lord. Our desire is that we would make much of you, that we would say with John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. Oh, that that would be our attitude. Thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for these listeners, for the sheep that you've given to me to look after here. Uh, and Lord, I pray that we would all, all of us continue on to this place of sanctification through this mortification of pride in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.